ladies and gentlemen, before we begin the episode, I just want a massive shout out to Rena's Brownies. If you will have a massive sweet tooth like me, you cannot go wrong by ordering from Rena's Brownies. Um, they have so many different flavors. I'd highly recommend the red velvet and the Oreo double chocolate cookie one. Um, you can find the you can find Rena's Brownies on Instagram. So that's R. E-E-N-A-S brownies. So R-E-E-N-I-A-S. Wait, fuck it. R-E-E-N-A-S brownies. As one word. Rena's brownies. Go and support local businesses because they need it and you need your sweet tooth fixed. And now on with the show. Good. Can you hear me now? Yeah, how's it going? You all right? Not bad. Well, yeah, the world's in a bit of a shit place at the minute, but you know. Um... Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Completely messed up. And getting more and more surreal every day, I think. Yeah. Um, I feel like Charlie Brooker's writing this and he's written it really, really well. <laughs> Rub, rubbing his hands with glee almost at the uh, bizarre storyline that's playing out for real. Yeah, um, that was actually. Because um, he was on the radio a few, like a week or so ago, uh, before his um, latest screen wipe was released, and he said that he wasn't going to release another Black Mirror, um, more Black Mirror episodes at the moment because of the kind of world we're in. But a few days ago, I saw an advert on Facebook for a fake advertisement for season six of Black Mirror, saying it's um, it's already started. <laughs> Wouldn't it be weird if it if it turned out you know the whole thing was just like a like a real version of liar liar oh or, no not liar like the Truman, the, Truman the, Truman the Truman show and everything is just a one big experiment stroke tv show well that is that is one conspiracy theory that i've heard flying around that this we're all just a part of the matrix and um <laughs> if that's true can i please be woken up or whatever or whatever it is Hang on, I'm, I'm just going to pop to the kitchen and, and fashion myself a hat out of tin foil. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, well, well we're going to bring in David Icke in a few minutes just to <laughs> level us out, I reckon. Um, how have you found not being able to do comedy? It's been tough. Do you know what? To begin with, I was like, actually, this is um, quite a nice little break, to be honest. It, it felt quite good to be able to have that step back from it all i was all very positive as lots of people were about oh, i'll get loads of writing done all of that kind of thing and i'm very fortunate in that you know comedy is not my main source of income yeah so i wasn't one of these people who was suddenly panicking because their diary emptied and they suddenly worried about whether they were going to be able to pay the bills um, so I was fortunate in that respect and thought to myself, oh, it'd be quite nice to just have a little break, a bit of a step back, a bit of time at home, no pressure. But now that it's gone on and now that there seems to be no end to, to when this situation's going to be, you know, when we're going to be able to go back into the clubs and back in front of an audience, it is starting to get a little bit uncomfortable and uh, I'm really starting to miss it, to be honest. Yeah, same. What I've what I've come to realise is that I've now got just so much pent up manic energy that I have no <laughs> where to release it. 
I do have to say, I'm a little bit concerned. I was talking to a friend of mine last night, and um, I'm a little bit concerned about how easily I've adapted to not integrating with people, <laughs> not, yeah. having, not having to see people on a day-to-day basis. And I think it's going to be really weird getting back into just having to have like face-to-face meetings with people mm. and talking to people and yeah, just that kind of interaction that's been mm. missing the whole time because there's been a screen in the way. Yeah, uh, well, I'm going to be going back into work a couple of like one or two days this this week because obviously like you're working a school and yeah it's going to be it's going to be interesting and i think um have you been going in because i had to go we we went in and did a few days worth of the um we had a rotor for the key worker provision and all of that kind of stuff so we've been open mm. for a very small number of kids so we've, we've technically been open but the parents haven't wanted to send their kids in mm. so there's been a lack of demand for us to actually be physically in school. Um, that's start that's finishing from Monday. So we're going to have like one or two kids in next week, um, next week. And even though I'm not rotated in to be in until like the end of the month, I said to the head teacher, just because, you know, I want to rip the bandaid off as quickly as possible. Can I come in a bit earlier? And he said, yeah, sure. You're a hero is what you're saying. Yeah, basically. Here, but... I'm, I'm blowing my jumping, pretty much. Gonna, now we've stopped clapping for the NHS, I'll go outside and give you a little clap at my front door. Oh, please do, man. <laughs> did, you, did you do the clapping? I did, did you... yeah. And then it was really interesting because very quickly I picked up on this, this thing that ended up being the end of it, really. Ended up mm. being the demise of it, that it's all very well and good to go and clap and cheer and bang a saucepan. But that's not actually making any kind of difference. Yeah. And I, d- I did feel it was really important. I'm, I'm slightly disappointed. Again, this is something that I was having a discussion about yesterday. I'm slightly disappointed that when all of this started with coronavirus and everything, it really felt like as much as it was a tragedy and a crisis and, and a horrendous thing, it was bringing people back together. And there, yeah. was, there was a very much a community spirit at the beginning of we're going to get through this and people are going to follow what they need to do and they're going to work together to make sure that we overcome this, this virus. And, and there was a real feeling of, well, maybe after Brexit and everything else that's gone on, this could be the thing that starts to patch up communities and starts to bring people back together, <laughs> even though it's a horrendous thing that's happening. Yeah. And I'm just really disappointed at how quickly people have started drawing battle lines again and slinging insults and judging everybody about Mm. the decisions that they make and the way that they behave and you know it I just find the whole thing a little bit troubling to be honest yeah we we didn't manage more than a couple of weeks of going all right let's all work together before we start going well hang on a minute why is Dave at number 32 not out clapping why, yeah. you know, all of those kind of things. Sorry, I've got a phone going off. No worries. It's, not my, um, it's, my, it's my little boy's. I see he's texting him. Oh. Oh, I can't get into it. He's, it's far too secure for me. <laughs> there you go. Right. Uh, yeah, I, compl- I completely agree. Um, I didn't clap. Like, I'm, I'm not saying that to be like a martyr or anything like that. I'm saying I didn't because I'm speaking to people who work in the NHS. Mm. they 
found it quite patronizing. I was like, yeah, I can completely see that because despite us going out and supporting you, your wages aren't going up and your job's not getting any easier, is it? Yeah, exactly. And and it's it's doing the things that actually we had. Um, so that the, where I live is quite close to the M1. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole um, there's a whole sort of recovery vehicle depot based just on the edge of the town. And they started at eight o'clock on a Thursday night, sending all their vehicles. They basically created a parade through the town every nice. Thursday, and they had the lights going and the horns going and all that kind of stuff. And there was quite a nice sort of feel-good vibe to it all for about two weeks before people started complaining about the noise. And you know, <laughs> it's just it, it strikes me that anything you do, people will take an opportunity to knock you down for it now. Well, it's yeah, I think. I think, but I don't think anyone really expected it to last more than a week or an, a week and a bit, though, did they? So I think no. by that point, they probably fell over it all, if that makes sense. Yeah, I guess. Do you do you mean the clapping or the whole? I meant the whole lot, the whole lockdown. Well, definitely. When, as you say, working in a school, it was quite interesting because we had yeah. an eye on whether the schools were going to shut and what was going to happen, and there was a definite feeling that they were going to shut despite the fact that they, the politicians kept coming out and saying, we won't be closing schools. Mm. This is not going to happen. And we sort of, we had earmarked the date at which we closed about three weeks prior to the announcement that they were going to close on that date. We kind of figured that it was coming at that point, but we were expecting, the reason we picked that date is because we were expecting them to say that's two weeks before Easter, then you'll have the Easter holidays, that's four weeks out of school, that should be enough for this to all go away, everybody will come back in after Easter and we would just get back to normal very, very quickly. Mm. Nobody expected it to go on for this amount of time and and the real um, jaw-dropping moment, I guess, was when they made that announcement and said, at the same time said, we've cancelled all the exams for the summer it was that point where you sort of went, oh, okay, this, that suggests long-term to me. This is not going to be something that's just done and dusted in a couple of weeks. Mm. Well, for us, because we're a school who our kids aren't, we're just getting a GCSE year now. So right. we weren't at that exam point. So we probably thought, well, I think we collectively thought that we'd be probably back up and running after the, after the Easter holidays, after the half term. and no not properly not properly anyway and i just miss go i I never thought i'd say this but i genuinely do miss going into work like just the act of going into work yeah and interacting with other people i do think it's it's like i said though i I sort of miss it (laughs) 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 i do do miss the internet and and it does become a bit like groundhog day now but Mm. like i said earlier i am a little bit alarmed at just how easy i found it to not have to deal with other people face to face that's probably because you want ultimately the life of a teacher is not the life that you really want if that makes sense you want to be work, um, sleeping all day and going into a club and performing at night. And that's how you want to be paid. Like <laughs> yes, that's that, that is true. That would be ideal. Hmm. When do you think we'll be back on stage? I just don't know. Um, oh, and I don't know what it will look like when we do go back on stage. This is my problem as well, because they're talking about sort of opening up restaurants and bars and all of that kind of stuff. So everybody hmm. goes, great, oh, we'll, we'll be back soon. 
but I think the restrictions that are going to be in place in those restaurants and bars and all of those kind of things will mean that it's very difficult to make a comedy night work in them. Yeah. Because as we know, comedy works best when you've got a large number of people packed into a small space mm-hmm. and the laughter can become contagious and that's... That's, you're spreading laughter, not coronavirus. Yeah. Around the room. That's what we're aiming for. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I don't think that is going to be, even if they do manage to open up bars and restaurants, I don't think that is, it's going to be conducive to that kind of environment. Mm. And also, I, don't, I think that there'll be some people who say, yes, I'm desperate to get back out and I'm not worried and I will quite happily walk back into bars and clubs and all of that kind of stuff. I think there's going to, equally be a large number of people who are very very uncomfortable for quite a long time to come about putting themselves in those kind of situations and those kind of scenarios and some of them might never return to comedy in Mm. the way that in the way that they would have done for audience members i'm talking about would will not feel comfortable going back into that kind of environment Mm. um i've kind of given myself a two uh three week after everyone else, after everyone else starts, I'm thinking three weeks after that, just to see how things pan out. <laughs> what, like a safety net? Yeah, pretty much. I've got, I've got a couple of dates in September that I'm booked in for, and I'm kind of hoping that they are still on the cards, but mm. who the fuck knows, to be honest. I, I would be quite surprised if they mm. happen. I've had... My furthest off cancellation that I've already had was for the end of November. Really? Who was, yeah. uh, where was that? Um, oh, I can't even remember off the top of my head. Um, but I got, and it was really early on in this as well. It, it's not recent. It was really mm. early on. They sent an email explaining that, really sorry, but they basically cancelled gigs for the rest of the year. Mm. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I don't know. I don't know quite how it's going to work, and also I don't know how it's going to be for. Like I said earlier, I don't make my living off doing comedy, mm. um, and I, you know, I get occasionally get paid expenses and things like that. But I don't know how the whole system of comedy is going to work, and paid gigs will work. Mm. And I sort of feel. Um, feel that it's really important that those people that do rely on comedy for an income get out there first exactly you know where you were saying about giving it a break and taking a step back yeah it's fine go and do by all means everyone go and do some open mic nights and and, uh, you know try and get try and get some new material out of all of this and write some new stuff but i think that there's some people who have really suffered um, and i would feel quite uncomfortable in taking any kind of paid work away from them in the in the short term exactly <laughs> I don't know how long that will last once the gigs come up i don't know how long i'll be able to go nah with that kind of um noble noble sentiment <laughs> be like, nah, actually yeah i'll do it i'll take it um yeah i completely agree because i've got enough people on my timeline who have been like really genuinely badly hit by this and yeah, that's why you see a lot of like Patreons coming up and a lot of well, a lot of Zoom gigs as well. Like a lot of I really, I really admire all those people who 
took a really short amount of time to feel sorry for themselves before mm. looking for ways to, <laughs> to make it all work. Yeah. I personally don't like the idea of me doing an online gig. Yep. And I've, stayed, I've stayed away from it yep. because I just, I thought it would probably be more damaging to my confidence than mm. anything else. Yep. Um, and some of the really early attempts at them that I saw, I don't think came across really, really well. But I am aware that people have kind of, obviously with everything, it takes a little bit of time to get it right, doesn't it? And people have started to do that now. Mm. And um, I've seen lots and lots of good examples of people doing online gigs and, and you know, finding other ways to put content out and, What's that word? Everybody, everybody's create. Everyone's a content creator now, aren't they? Um, but yeah, everybody's found a way to kind of keep doing what they want to do and doing what mm. they need to do, and trying to particularly those people who have made a, li- a living, a good living, whilst they've been uh, effectively furloughed from being a comedian mm. has been has been really impressive. I think. I mean, like the likes of Scott Bennett and Rob Mulholland have taken the ball and fucking ridden it man and fair play yeah yeah absolutely there's there's quite a few james uh alderson i don't know if you know him mm-hmm. it's not even performing stand i think from what i understand he just goes and and chats online every night mm. every night for about half an hour and, and says what he's thinking and some of it i'm sure will be very very funny but it doesn't have to be mm. um and he's doing really well and Stuart Goldsmith, he's got his um, comedians on the couch thing as well. That show, the Infinite Sofa, yeah. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> and he's uh, got. I've, I've, this is what's been really interesting as well, because he's had some really big names on there. Yeah. And he he did that really quickly. And you, I would ex, I would have expected for something like that, you would either have to throw a budget at it, or you would have to build up over time to get big name commit. But I guess what he's got is links to really, really top industry people. Mm-hmm. And at the moment at which they've all got clear diaries as well, <laughs> and none of them are out gigging and doing stuff. So I guess they, they, they're keen to kind of participate. And he's built up, he's built up enough of a platform with the ComCom pod to yeah. say, I've got this, would you like to do it? And they're yeah. going to jump it and say yes, because there's nothing yeah. else to do. And he also, he's, I mean, I, I was very fortunate when I made the documentary that I made in my first year of comedy. I mm. interviewed Stu for that. Mm. And he was absolutely, he's a very affable guy. He's a very, mm. you know, good, he's one of the good guys in comedy. So I can see why other comedians and his peers, I guess, um, are keen to be part of the things that he's doing because they know mm. that he's one of one of comedy's good people. Mm. Question. Um, you know, uh, don't have to give me a specific amount, but because I've got a little a potential idea for a documentary once this is finished, mm. how much in the ballpark did it cost for you to make yours? I wish I knew. i wish i knew i i I have thought about this periodically but it's so difficult to work out because the honest answer is in terms of production and um the actual making of the documentary 
it cost me virtually nothing. Really? I I borrowed cameras. I bought I I bought one camera that was a couple of hundred quid and was so rubbish that I don't think there's any footage from the there might be a couple of gigs that I've filmed on that camera. Mm. But most of it's not filmed on that. Okay. Um and I borrowed the main camera that we used. I borrowed the um, GoPro cameras that we rigged the car up with because lots of the film is based on, is on this journey to Edinburgh. It's and that's how we to Edinburgh, which is... Yeah, so that's how we framed the whole film is that we actually filmed the drive up and over the course of that journey, I talked with um, Ben Robinson, who was a promoter at the Comedy Cow, who had supported me all the way through. Mm. He and I talked over the year that I'd had and then we dropped the footage of all the things that had happened in that year in. So, in yeah, in terms of the tech stuff, borrowed it. In terms of people's hours, um, the, the <laughs> editing and all that kind of stuff, blagged them into helping me out. So it really cost me nothing. <laughs> what it cost me was the experience that any comedian would have had starting out. So the hours of traveling, the couple of hundred quid that I spent doing a comedy course, the accommodation in Edinburgh for the mm. first year, all of the stuff about putting a show on in Edinburgh, mm. that's where the costs were. But in terms of the actual film itself, virtually nothing. Um, I think the only cost we had was to put it on Amazon because it ended up on Amazon um, and Amazon Prime. The only cost that we had was to pay a hundred pounds for a company to do the subtitles for it okay because amazon insists insists on you having subtitles um and that was it okay that's really really good information what's your idea what's your documentary um i'll tell you off i'll tell you when we're <laughs> off recording when we're not recording this because of yeah okay. um yeah you're not ready to release it to the world yet no because it's it's literally a nugget of an it's literally a nugget of an idea and i want to speak to people i want to speak to potential people who are filmmakers about doing it first and then then that's, once... that's one thing i would say i mean like i say i, I blagged people into helping me there was literally <laughs> me my brother <laughs> Um, a mate of mine who I work with, who is our technician at work, so theatre and lighting and sound technician, but mm. therefore knows a lot about all this other kind of stuff. And Ben, as I say, at, at the Comedy Cow. Mm. I didn't have any recognised or experienced filmmakers involved in the process. Yeah. And um, probably should have. Had. <laughs> um, I think we were... I mean, when you watch the film, you can tell that it's not professionally made. And But I think that added to the charm of it, though. Well, that's what I hope, is that we, we had this discussion quite a few times as we were making it, and we mm. sort of said, look, we, we have made this with no money whatsoever. We have um, done it to a level that we can do as a group of mates, really, making mm. a film. And I think I think if people are sort of forgiving of that. I, I hope that they don't need to be too forgiving. I think it's still quite, quite an interesting watch, quite a good watch. But I think if people understand it for what it is, then it, it, it's okay. I'm, quite, I'm very proud of it. But, without, you know. without blowing your horn too much, I genuinely think it's something that everyone who is thinking about starting out on comedy, whenever it starts back up again, should watch. 
Well, that's that's a very nice thing to say. Keep going. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and again, I was very lucky. Where you say about talking to people, being involved and things like that, mm. I was very, very fortunate that I asked a lot of people if they would help and enough of them said yes mm. in terms of interviews and things like that. I mean, I remember being extremely excited that a guy called Oliver Double, mm. um, who, is, who is a lecturer in stand-up comedy, used to be a stand-up comedian, is now a lecturer, agreed to do it. Mm. Before I'd got any comedians on board, before I knew where it was going or what was happening, I emailed him and said, this is my idea. I was, when I came up with the idea, I was reading his book at the time about mm. the history of stand-up comedy. And, um, and when he emailed back and said, yeah, sure, I'd love to spend an hour chatting to you and, and I'm quite happy to be involved, it felt immediately like it was taking off. It felt yeah. like it was, it was going to happen and it was going to work. And then um, getting, like I said, Stu Goldsmith involved, James, James Acaster, agreeing to be interviewed for it was absolutely phenomenal. Mm. Um, and and it, <laughs> what it did mean was that very quickly I was committed to doing it and there was no sort of dipping your toe in. It was just happening. Um, yeah. And therefore, we were we were on it and going and that was it. It's one of those things where like, you jump in the deep end of the swimming pool and you've got to swim, otherwise you're going to sink, isn't it? Yeah, and also what it meant, um, I, get, I don't know what your idea is for your documentary, but what it meant was we didn't really know what the story was until it was finished mm. we, we i knew the the framework of it was going to be that i was going to go to edinburgh and do this show and that i figured that that was going to be a big task but we we never knew quite how it was going to pan out until it actually happened and there's bits in the film where i'd sort of committed to doing all this and then i got to february and i hadn't got a venue for Edinburgh and I didn't have anywhere to go and perform this show and those bits are really genuine like when I'm saying when I'm on camera saying I don't know if I'm going to get a room in Edinburgh I don't I haven't heard anything and I thought I would have heard by now and now I'm panicking mm. the whole thing could have come crashing down at any moment <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, it, it all just sort of came together and all just happened and it was definitely more by luck than judgment i think mm. so speaking of edinburgh what yeah. do you think is going to happen to that next year i'm or really worried forward? about this i'm really worried about that. i was talking about comedy not coming back and the whole model of how comedy rooms work and all of that kind of thing and mm. um, basically my whole plan for developing in comedy is built around edinburgh because uh, not because I'm naive enough to think that going to Edinburgh will suddenly open up doors to, you know, a life of success as a comedian, mm. but because from a practical point of view, for me, it works really, really well. Yeah. As a teacher, I can uh, have that time in the year when Edinburgh Festival is on, when I'm on summer holidays and I can afford to go to Edinburgh and I can put my heart and soul into doing it. Mm. Um, and I, I'd already fortunately decided that I wasn't going to go to Edinburgh this year uh, I might have gone up for a few days just to kind of check it out but I wasn't taking a show to Edinburgh 
but was very much planning on taking a show next year and the following year and, and had kind of already thought out what that was going to look like and how that's going to be and, have, and I'm planning for that actively. Mm. And now I'm really worried that the whole model of Edinburgh won't work mm. because of the sheer numbers of people in small spaces and et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, you know, in, in, in famously in Edinburgh, for people doing the sort of level of shows that I've been doing, where I do the free festival and go out on the streets and hope that it rains 10 minutes before your show so that people can <laughs> you, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, you, you're, you're lucky if you get double figures in through the door. Mm. Um, I've been very fortunate to, last time in Edinburgh, have double figures up to about 40 in... 75% of the shows that we did, which was great, but that could all go. Mm. And I just, I, I worry that either, either Edinburgh won't happen because, you know, it's not viable for that amount of venues to run shows. And I've done shows in Edinburgh where it's, it's held 12 people. If you, if you fill the room, there's 12 people in the audience. Yeah. Um, those can't happen anymore. That that won't work. No. Um, which which means that either Edinburgh falls apart or it becomes elitist, and you. Lose. You mean it wasn't elitist already? Well, <laughs> but the, but the great thing about Edinburgh is that anybody can take a show up there. Yeah, that's true. Anybody can do it if you put your mind to it and you work hard on the show you can go and there are opportunities for everybody. Yeah. And I worry that it will only be uh, larger venues that can then adhere to the, the kind of guidelines, whatever the rules might be at that particular moment in time, mm. which is going to affect the cost of those rooms and how the whole kind of ecosystem of Edinburgh works. Mm. And you end up losing the opportunity for comedians who are going up and learning and growing to be able to go and do that. Mm. I mean, one of the best things about doing the documentary in that first year and being a brand new comedian and going up to Edinburgh and doing a full run at Edinburgh at the end of my first year in comedy is that it made me a much better comedian. Yeah. And when I came back from Edinburgh and then went back out doing open mic nights and starting to get open spots on pro bills and all that kind of stuff, I was much better for the experience of having gigged 25 days in a row yeah. and I th there'll be other people now potentially who don't have that opportunity yeah um i completely agree that on pretty much every one of those points especially the whole concept because i did it at the end of my well halfway through my second year in comedy and yeah. it was the best learning experience i think i've i think i've ever had i mean it's pretty expensive don't get me wrong yeah. but <laughs> it's <laughs> It's essentially a summer camp for adults, isn't it? Uh, yeah, Stu Goldsmith, in his, in his interview that he did with me, described it as college for stand-ups. Yeah. Like, it's like freshers week, uh, and, and, but, a, but a college where you're learning all about how to do it as well. Yeah, and that's the best way to put it. And that would be a real shame if that's, got, if that's gone. Because mm. we can't just have the likes of Gilded Balloon or the big three as a, the the big three as they're called taking everything over well i hope not as i say i hope not and i don't know but but 
to go back, I suppose, to answer your original question, it's very worrying what will happen mm. with Edinburgh. I, I guess what will happen is that um, actually, and there are lots of other festivals already, but I think yeah. there'll be more other festivals in smaller pockets rather than this one big place where everybody from all over the world goes. Mm. And there might be something along those lines where you actually end up with a lot more smaller festivals taking place, mm. perhaps perhaps during August, and people move around. They're not all in one place. The comedians, I mean, I'm all in one place for an entire month. Mm. They might do a week here and a week there. and a week, I don't know. But... Um, but it, like I said, selfishly, that doesn't suit me as a teacher who wants <laughs> to be able to just plan my summer and go to Edinburgh and spend, effectively, spend my year gigging towards taking a show to Edinburgh in the summer and then starting again and doing that again um, for all of the time that I continue to be a teacher in who is also trying to be a comedian at the same time mm. it, it just it seems to fit really nicely for me and my long-suffering wife <laughs> um has has kindly agreed because i did have a plan to get out of tea i've had a plan for years to not be a teacher anymore mm. um and that hasn't worked out financially and with family commitments and all of that kind of stuff i need the income of being a teacher but she has said for all of the time that you are in teaching you are more than welcome to spend August in Edinburgh doing that. And that kind of commitment to her then running the household for a month a year and looking after, I say a month a year, it's all year. Because yeah. I'm not <laughs> kids and doing all the other stuff anyway. But, um, but yeah, that, that kind of support to say, well, I understand that you don't want to be teaching full time whilst you're having to do that. Here's the compromise. Mm-hmm. Makes the whole thing seem a lot more palatable, to be honest. And with the crisis that we've that we're currently going through it feels like a much more sensible plan going forward anyway is mm. to stay in teaching because who knows what could happen down the line who yeah exactly um i think the one thing that the one potentially good thing that has come out of this and i've said this a few times on the podcast um is that um it's gonna create a somewhat a sort of a level playing field because we're all going to be going back as everyone's going to be going back into comedy around about near enough the same time. And that can potentially mean that some of the old guard has dropped off and it's going to leave new spaces for new people to stand up and put things in place, if that makes sense. Well, possibly, yeah. I mean, it could work the other way. Like it, could, it could also mean that, you, again, you lose the people who can't afford to do it anymore yeah. because they've had to take another job or and you know it 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 just does seem it does seem a little bit unfair and a bit of a shame really so that's the end of part one of my interview with the wonderful mark Rowe. as always if you like what you've heard please give it a nice five star rating on itunes it really really does help and Click up for part two, where we talk about the Goonies and what Mark can I think of it. See you then.